You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. All right, welcome back to the show, Downers. This is Matt Carter. I think you know that already. What have I been telling y'all lately? Oh, yeah, we got Emory shows coming up for $10 at EmoryMusic.com. And that's a that's all I'm going to hit you with right now. I'm going to tell you about the episode today. The episode today is uh, with a really interesting guy named Stephen Miller. He's a professor at Clemson University. He's awesome. And uh, I found him because I was doing some digging on gun control, actually. I was curious about gun control and, and some ways to think about it because it seems like the topic gets super politicized and it's more about like who is your friends and what's your vibe than how do we solve a problem. And when I got to think, looking at it and thinking about it, I realized he's doing some real research. He's a political scientist and a scientist that writes papers and does research and shares his findings and gets published. And it occurred to me, this is the kind of thing I wish we would listen to more. We get people in the media quoting studies, and you get people that mention studies, but I figured, why not talk to people who write studies? And then once I got into that, and since he's a political scientist and we got so much stuff going on with politics these days, I thought, man, I should use this hour I've got with him to talk about how, how, how do politics really work and what's our involvement in it? And on an issue like gun control, how do we, how are we supposed to sort through that and, and what would be the most effective way to think about it? So I invited him on the show. He was glad to come. I'm glad because you guys know I love Clemson University. He was uh, very gracious and explained a lot of stuff to me, and I had a great time talking to him. I think you're going to like this episode very much, so let's get right to it. This is Stephen V. Miller from Clemson University. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's make harder. Yeah. A lot of Clemson people, you know, in Seattle, it's a weird thing with the engineering uh, crossover, I suppose it is. It's uh, a lot of Boeing people. Uh, there's even people here that went all the way to Clemson and th- to go to college and now come back here and work. And there's a lot of people that graduated with engineering degrees that have been pulled out here for tech companies and Boeing and stuff like yep. that. So I'm always surprised at how many Tiger fans I see out here. So, <laughs> I don't know if you know it or not, but I went to Clemson in 97. My dad, my sister went to Clemson. Um, oh, so right. we're big Tiger fans. I know you're probably not a Tiger fan so much as a, a uh, staff member, but how did how, actually I am curious about that. You came from Ohio State. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's that. But do you wind up being an actual Clemson fan? I, I wish Clemson well, honestly. I'll say, though, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be mad about the Fiesta Bowl for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, you know, the interesting thing is I, I got my undergraduate uh, – I did my undergraduate at The Ohio State University. I got my Ph.D. at the University of Alabama. My fiancé's family are all Washington grads, and I'm employed by Clemson. So mm-hmm. last year's playoff was basically Oh, yeah. My, yeah, <laughs> it was just – it was the Steve playoff, basically. Wow, yeah. I, 
Yeah, I'm happy Clemson beat Alabama though. So that's everybody uh, is except Alabama fans. But that that's the that's the best part for Clemson is just getting to have that underdog somewhat of a role and get to do that. It's been a, a, yeah. a real pleasure. So hopefully things I think things will be good at Clemson for a long time. But uh, will you affirm to people out there that Clemson really is a great and cool place and atmosphere and vibe and college town in a way that you know a lot of colleges across the country are not. You don't have to affirm that, but if that's true, <laughs> as an outsider who's there now, would you affirm yeah. that for me? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a unique college town. I mean, because I'm used to college towns kind of like a Tuscaloosa, like a Champaign, where mm-hmm. basically the, the town, uh, sorry, the, uh, the university is the core of the town, and the town kind of grows around it. And mm-hmm. uh, Clemson's unique because the town is the university, and the university is the town. Mm-hmm. And so you, no one really lives in Clemson. They live in where I live in Central, or they live in... Anderson or Greenville or Seneca, and they just kind of commute mm-hmm. like the 10, 15 minutes to uh, to Clemson. But uh, as I as I tell people, especially for people that are you know, I'm from Los Angeles, and most of my family and friends are in Ohio at the moment. And they say, "What's South Carolina like?" And I tell them, "Listen, if you got to move to South Carolina, move to the mountains. I'd much mm-hmm. rather live in the mountains than I'd live on the coast." Absolutely. So it's a, it's a great vibe. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's, uh, I don't want to waste your time. We only have a limited time today anyway. And so, but I do have still one more broad question before we get into even more, uh, focused topics. But as I'm kind of curious how you see as an academic, which I suppose you just say that's your world, academia, right? You write papers, you do science, political science stuff. Uh, most of the stuff I find on you is papers written in that form. Um, There, we're in a a unique time now where people like me are talking to people like you and everybody's interacting with news stories and scientific studies and academia. Like it's all blurring together and sometimes that really freaks me out. And I'm wondering how do how do academics see the rest of media and pop media all the way down to podcasts of individuals like me that are that are just doing these different things like Sometimes I'm curious, do academics want more public exposure to their stuff, or do they just think all that regular part of media is silly? I'm kind of confused if that makes any sense to you. Oh, no. You know, honestly, people – there's probably a a general – thinking especially within my field, within political science, there's probably going to be a – a generational divide where people that are younger in the field like me are actually seeking these opportunities out and are all too happy to oblige. Because from our from our vantage point, we kind of wish people would listen to us more. Mm-hmm. You know, we would. Now, granted, we're all kind of vain like that. Every single last one of us, but um, not just in the profession, but everyone in the world is kind of vain mm-hmm. like that. But um, you know, we're we're at this critical juncture where a lot of what we do, the type of knowledge we disseminate, is kind of a form of a public good. Okay. Which means it doesn't really respond to market incentives per se. You value the public good for the val- for the kind of intrinsic nature of the public good itself, the knowledge and what that can do to help us solve problems. But it's also routinely the case that the people on whom we depend the most to help us disseminate public goods are also the people that tend to hate us the most. And those are th- people like state legislators. These are politicians that obviously – would like us to come up with findings the extent to which they conform to what they would like to be true. Mm-hmm. And obviously we're not beholden to that, even though sometimes there is that real pressure to conform to that. And and I think one way it's easier for, uh, say, what's happening in Wisconsin right now, for the state government there to just kind of stick it to the University of Wisconsin and that system. Tell us what's going on there. I'm, I'm not familiar. Uh, 
Uh, the University of Wisconsin, or the state legislators are trying to repurpose the University of Wisconsin system to be more basically of a trade school than an actual research university. Mm-hmm. And so the the perspective of the state government there is that the students are customers and that the customer would be best served if the professor did nothing but teach and did not do or engage in any research, which would then mean that a lot of the protections that uh, professors have for themselves, things like tenure would probably go to. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easier for state legislators to sell that when obviously you bundle it with this idea of, hey, look at the football program or look at all the fun activities you can do if you join the country club. But again, it's easier, I think, for you know your, your, your average citizen to um, accept those cues if we're not out there kind of making our case as well. And so mm-hmm. I'm all too happy, you know, with, a, with an, um, an honest uh, and a, a good faith uh, podcast, a magazine interview, I'm all too happy to talk. And I think um, from our vantage point, we need to be doing this better. I think we're, we as political science in general are doing this better, especially some of the younger uh, professors among us. It's difficult because in some ways we're trained to speak and still our professional incentives are to speak to a very narrow audience of academics who will Mm -hmm. then evaluate our work based off the scholarly merits. And yet we need to kind of bridge this increasing divide between what we do in the ivory tower and what the average citizen thinks that we do. And anything that can help people like me bridge the gap and just kind of tell you, you know, yeah, I study this stuff or I've kind of looked into this stuff and with my expertise, I'd be happy to share this type of knowledge or my my assessment of these to you as an, as an average citizen. So I, I'm all too happy to do it. And I think any younger professor, especially in my field, are all too happy to oblige when these opportunities come up. So that there is a little bit of a generational change there. That's interesting. The problem seems to be that when you write these narrow, as you said, papers intended at a certain audience, they feel pretty inaccessible to at least most people, which has never really been that big of a deal as it is now, because now there's this real tension. But to, first of all, there's an attack probably on studies themselves. Like now every Tom, Dick and Harry knows how to discount a study or say, well, that's just studies or lobbyists pay for the, you know, that, like yeah. everybody's now on the level of knowing how to spot or, or not even to spot silly stuff or fake stuff, but, or marginalize, but they know how to marginalize things in order to serve their purpose without even understanding it in the first place. So it seems like this really crazy intersection of pop media and media and journalism and politics and academic research, which do you feel like it's under attack by the general public? Like it's not listened to or discounted more easily? And for a variety of reasons. One, it's, um, as you mentioned, you can always go consult Professor Google to find some type of study that conforms to your pre-existing dispositions. And that's true of God knows anything. So, for example, classic case of climate change, where basically 97 to 99% of climate scientists agree that, you know, global warming is happening on a global scale above what is normal and that we are to blame for it. But then you can find those rare studies or you can find just Google climate change hoax or whatever and find a a litany of articles from professor google that are not necessarily scientific but they will tell you what you want to be true yeah and i think to mention the the other ask there are two other kind of minor points points i want to note about the inaccessibility issue and some of them i think are basically on us uh one we do academics tend to be very jargon heavy and the reason that we are jargon heavy is that we're largely kind of still the incentives are to speak to ourselves and to communicate within our narrow bubble, within our kind of uh, very uh, focused applications and topics. 
that are often kind of methodological. So a lot of them, what we quibble about is kind of knowledge at the margins. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously not going to be accessible to the the, uh, the general public. And by the way, I don't blame you. I mean, so what you really want to know is what's important. Yeah. Um, so to that extent, the extent to which we um, kind of argue amongst ourselves within our ivory tower, and I do hate that term, but um, uh, the extent to which we argue amongst ourselves about the minutia of methods, uh, obviously that doesn't help you as the general public at all. And two, a lot of our knowledge is disseminated within things that are pricey, like journal articles. And so there's like this push in all forms of science, but especially political science, too, to kind of open what we would call open access publishing. Mm-hmm. So that if something goes uh, goes past peer review, in other words, it has a methodological rigor, the stuff that we as academics tend to argue amongst ourselves the most about, uh, then by all means, please share that with the general public. But if the journal itself is like a prestige journal or kind of one that's been around forever, they charge a very high price uh, for access to these things that, by the way, I don't blame you as the general public for saying, no, I'm not looking that up. I don't have that kind of money. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is, yeah, one, make sure we're ta- tailoring our language to who's ultimately important. And who's ultimately important in political science is you as the general public. And two – we should be better sharing these results through whatever medium possible. Open access publishing is becoming uh, a prominent a prominent outlet for these things, things like Plus One, things like research and politics. And two, when the opportunity arises, I would love to come on these things, and, and really any professor would love to come on and just kind of, sh- and kind of talk and kind mm-hmm. of uh, share what expertise we have with uh, the general public within, a, within an easily accessible language. Mm-hmm. So I've read some of your papers, and I had just the slightest amount of background in papers. I was a biology major at Clemson in pre-med for a year and was doing chemistry papers and biology papers, and largely that's what made me quit to move over and study music and become a musician. Zach is like literally what happened. I was writing these papers, staying up at night, getting the jargon right and the putting the <laughs> abstract correct, getting everything just right. And I was like, the footnotes and everything. So this is, this is not, I don't want to be doing this the rest of my life. And I quit. So I'm familiar with the form a little bit. And I just feel like, man, it's pretty, it's difficult to get in there and get the real information from, even to me. Like I, I, I read a couple of your papers and, uh, you know, even them, I feel like I want to skim them, man. Get to the good stuff, find, get to the conclusion, read the abstract, skim through the middle. Is even the way that I find myself doing. It. And I felt ashamed when I realized that's what I was doing, but it is. Um, but let's. I would like to do a couple of things if, in this talk, more layman's type ability. Um, I don't know if you have other ones, but the two that I was interested in is the one about gun control, and then the one about terrorism and the judicial system. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there's. Is there other things that is that, are those current enough or things you're into talking about right now? Still? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it occurs to me that when you have an issue like gun control, for instance, mm-hmm. it's very hard. That one of the reasons I'm trying to attracted to academic stuff is it seems at least lower, less politically charged, less agenda driven than most stuff. Now there's still humans involved and you know, mm-hmm. the the big critique that most people will still like to hurl as, yeah, but even those scientists and even those professors, they, they act like they're unbiased and they know everything, but they still bring their own biases and this and that or whatever. So people even like to attack on that level, I understand. But I at least find that if you're going to do that much research that narrowly, um, then I feel like that's going to be on the less biased side than almost anything else. So gun control is one of those issues to me that I love the th- 
just because there's a lot to think about and it seems like there's no clear answer and I don't have any really strong I love this issue because I have very few strong opinions about it or I, I not that's that's not true I have lots of strong opinions about it and they're very conflicting even to me so it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to me to try to get into an objective world about it but could you give a quick overview of just what what interested you in this in the topic of gun control specifically and then walk me through what it is how you set out to do research and how is that biased or unbiased as far as what you're trying to prove or where does that motivation come from internally i want people to get a grip on how you know research works well um here here's a fun fact about that if you actually look at my blog on my website um, I think I even preface it this way. Every, at the end of every semester, obviously, we as professors, we get a, like a, a ton of final exams to grade. And here's like a dirty secret. I hate grading. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't like it. It's, it. it's tedious. It's important. It's an important service that we provide students. But at the end of the semester, just to kind of satiate my own intellectual curiosity, I like to kind of engage in some type of data analysis project, just completely on the fly. My specialty, I think, or what I'm really good at is analyzing survey data. And I, th- I like to think I'm really, really good at that. And near the end of that semester, that was December 2015, uh, I think the Planned Parenthood shooting had just happened. And I was in Colorado Springs. And, um, you know, from there, I, I just thought, okay, you know what? I don't, I don't enjoy grading. Uh, so I, and I like to kind of give myself something to do while I grade. And that had just happened. So the, the question there is, you know, what do Americans actually think about gun control? And then from there, it was just... Um, a, a simple means of kind of downloading or finding a, a publicly available and good and rich data source like the General Social Survey, of which I've always been aware, kind of finding those multiple ways from 1972 to 2014, now 2016, and where they asked basically citizens, uh, would they support a national law requiring a police, permit before, a police permit before a gun purchase? And then from there, a lot of it was just kind of relying on the intuitive stuff. And clearly partisanship is what we think is at stake in a lot of these things. And in fact, after the, was it the San Bernardino incident? Uh, I think uh, congressional Democrats or Senate Democrats uh, pushed forward a legislation to close the terror watch, uh, terror watch list uh, loophole and Republicans all voted it down and largely in this, in a unanimous vote. Um, and then from there, again, honestly, um, yeah, I have preferences about gun control. And from my perspective, um, what kind of matters or where I see, where I see the issue of gun control is that the transaction costs with what we would call in the economics literature, mm-hmm. the costs mm-hmm. associated with doing anything, the transaction costs for committing a violent rampage is way, way too small. And, but the costs are large, right? Of what happened in Las Vegas, what happened in San Bernardino, mm-hmm. what happened in Newtown, Newtown, especially what happened in Aurora, what happened in Colorado Springs. There are sadly way too many of these incidents, and then from there, a lot of it's just kind of seeing what's going on there. And obviously, yeah, you go with the you go with what the data are telling you. So it's not the case. In fact, as you'll notice, it's not like I'm, you know, the analysis there is trying to impugn Republican voters. In fact, if anything, as I kind of know, they want this too. In fact, they are advocating or in this uh, in that gun control measure, they're advocating for a very aggressive form of gun control. And in fact, most do. You know, most Americans do. Even most Republicans want. Uh, strong forms of gun control. And from there, you just kind of, um, you, you start with an interest, you start with a puzzle, you gather the data, you have preliminary ideas of what's happening, maybe, and that'd be obviously one partisanship is kind of important here. 
And then you go with what the data are telling you, and ultimately what the data are telling us right now is that partisanship is not as robust in explaining attitudes towards gun control as we think. And in fact, that kind of squares with a general sentiment that we would observe about politics, is that politics at the elite level, that is at con in Congress, in among major media, um, in Washington and New York and whatever, uh, they're heavily polarized. Uh, ordinary citizens like you and me, we're not that polarized. And on gun control, there's more agreement than disagreement, even though we're do we are seeing that kind of clear bifurcation happening mm -hmm. between Democrats and, and Republicans. And so, yeah, to answer your question, I mean, that's kind of what it looks like. It just start it stems from intellectual curiosity. And any good professor, and I don't know if I'm necessarily good, I think I'm okay at least, but any good professor is going to be intellectually curious, eternally curious. And that's mm -hmm. the only way, that's the only reason we do this stuff is we, we like asking questions and then finding the answers. And that's largely for me how that project started. And, you know, sadly, I wrote that manuscript. I kind of wrote up some preliminary results. I wrote that up around January 2016, but I've never really done much with it. All I've had to do for the past year is just update the latest tragedy that I use as to kind of frame how the article starts. Mm -hmm. It was San Bernardino, then it was uh, Pulse nightclub, and then it was the Fort Lauderdale shooting at the airport, um, and then it was most recently Mandalay Bay. Right. So, um, but that's that's largely what it looks like. So there was, there's so much interesting stuff in there. So in case people, I'm sure they haven't read the paper, but but what what I think you're saying there that might be shocking to people, or it was to me, was that you're saying that, I, I don't have it in front of me, but let's say what some of the regulations are that, that had all, it was like 15 regulations that were g proposed gun control ones, and all of them but one had a majority of support from like, 89% down to the lowest one was still like 49% support. And these are laws that have not been passed and can't get passed. And they have very, very clear bipartisan support from both Republicans and Democrats. Stuff like, you know, controls for mentally ill, terror watch list. Uh, what are some of the other ones on there that almost everybody agrees on? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, banning guns at schools, just all, all sorts of them, and, yeah. including, by the way, some that are not at all helpful, like a national stand, stand your ground law. So obviously, weird thing is most Americans would support that too, but experts would agree that that won't help anything. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, um, but yeah, it, most Americans support even very aggressive forms of gun control. And you'll notice, um, most legislation that gets proposed on this stuff uh, doesn't dare touch that. In mm -hmm. fact, like the, the gun control measure du jour in our survey data is about, um, you know, whether or not you need to obtain a police permit before buying a gun of any type. And that's a subtly aggressive form of gun control because basically, you know, when you listen to people who have very strong positions about a maximalist interpretation of the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, they're expressing the need for that Second Amendment in the language of executive or state overreach, right? Mm -hmm. That the state's out to get you. In order to defend yourself, you need to buy a gun. So, eh, okay, whatever. But all the same, you know, that type of gun control legislation is explicitly connecting the second, basically, opportunities or abilities to purchase a gun as made possible by the Second Amendment to a filter imposed by the state. Mm -hmm. And still, despite the fact that most opposition to gun control is couched in exactly that type of fear, mostly misguided, it's still the case like seven out of ten Americans would absolutely support that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, that's so, really weird. I just don't think people know that. And so what I want to get at is what does this mean or why is it happening this way from the political on down? But I'll disclose to you and listener-wise, my default position coming into it is one of just pure, I don't know if it's intuitional or whatever, but I like guns uh, and I don't like the government and laws and reach and overreach. I'm, I lean libertarian for sure as far as those things go. Uh, and I largely stay out of politics. Uh, I do have some affinity for guns in, in that I think they're cool. You know, my dad has some at, at at our house in the woods back in South Carolina. I don't own a gun, and I'm not going to own a gun. I have kids, and I, the data tells me don't have a gun around, period, even just for myself. If I have a gun, I, my wife's likely to kill me with it as I'm to save her life with it. I mean, I know I know the data on that, so I'm not fooling with a gun currently. I do think they're kind of cool. And then, But when I go through the things of the gun control stuff that's in that survey, uh, even me, I'm probably big on the Second Amendment and all this stuff. I still probably common sense wise agree with almost all of of the regulations. So what must be going on is there's this thing where the I don't know if it's the politicians or who the problem is, but it's like we can't even all we know is we have to totally the politician level, the political level has to just dig in and fight and not give up an inch of ground no matter what because that's what they're more worried about is the fact that they don't want to lose a momentum or a something. So they'll oppose stuff that even they all clearly would agree with and be fine with because it would be directionally moving against the tide would be moving against them. Is that what's going on? My own, my, my own interpretation of what's happening is that, um, well, importantly, uh, remember the, the statistics that you kind of see about what Americans think about gun control that gets you the direction, but it doesn't get you the valence. And, for the most part, people who are for gun control are not as heavily invested in the issue as people who are against gun control. And one of the areas where the NRA does its most damage is, yeah, obviously they donate to politicians. And yes, they're heavily indebted to Republican voters, uh, sorry, to Republican politicians, but they turn out voters. They have this huge canvassing operation, which largely keeps uh, Republicans in check. And so even if there were, might be a Republican in a purplish state uh, that might be advocating uh, or might be interested in maybe closing, say, the terror watch list. From the NRA's perspective, uh, any concession of gun rights is off the table. Um, and so uh, what the NRA does is credibly threaten these Republican politicians with primary challenges, that they will find a candidate in the, can in the congressperson's district or in the senator's state who could credibly primary that politician and that senator, that congressperson sees that credible threat, realizes that basically gun rights activists are heavily invested voters and is unwilling to piss off part of the base, basically. Mm -hmm. So the currency that, that they have, the NRA and the gun lobby or whatever, is less about dollars and the currency is votes itself, which even becomes more yeah. powerful because that's what causes politicians to behave the way they do, not their morals or beliefs is the way I look at it. Yeah, people who are uh, big gun control advocates, uh, I forget what the, the, the groups are, like the people for Brady's Law, the people for uh, uh, the Concerned Mothers or whatever group that is. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously they're invested, but the numbers for dedicated anti-gun control activists are going to outweigh the numbers for dedicated pro-gun control activists. Your typical citizen in the middle, someone like you or me who have political views that really don't cluster on these core topics, um, we have our preferences. It's not a big deal to us. Right. So, and, and that's why basically if you're a Republican politician, 
you're not interested in them in the middle. You're interested basically in those core diehards that are responsible for you winning your primary and for you winning your general election, basically. So, so you know, I come, I come from my, my mentality is I'm kind of anti. I'm not even anti-government or anything. Like I'm fine with it doing its thing. I don't like participating in it. And for the reason, like you said, the way you say, well, the people in the middle mostly don't care. I think that's kind of a good thing. And I'm, I don't know if I how to articulate that right, especially to a political science professor. I imagine he thinks politics is quite important. But I try to de-emphasize <laughs> politics in every way, and I want to get more people to pay less attention to politics. Is almost the is almost what I think is the the best way forward. I've been a part of you know, swimming in artistic culture. And I've seen culture change. I've seen people change their minds. I've seen whole movements happen that, that I've been around or a part of in many things. And I just don't ever feel like politics is the best way to get change done in the uh, in the world. I really just don't believe that. So I try to de-emphasize it and emphasize what you can do, what matters to you, what, you know, and those kinds of things. And so this disturbs me even more so when I see that you seem to have come to some conclusion that the the politicians are polarizing, which seems very unhealthy, but they're doing it for just these mechanical reasons, uh, not moral ones or anything else. And now it seems to be bleeding down and pushing down further into the culture. And that disturbs the shit out of me infinitely that now we're yeah. going to be forced to, for me to say, oh, I don't really care much about that. Even me saying that on a podcast like this almost feels like I'm going to get pressure from both sides saying, you better care. Don't you care if children die? Don't you care if if, the, if you don't have your rights and the government takes away your rights? Well, I, I see what you're saying, but now you're just asking me to engage in some game thing, which it feels like to me, and I don't think we're going to get anywhere. This polarization and politicization of everything is terrifying to me and very negative. But do you think that it's not even like... Help me understand, is this, are we in danger of the these politicians who I have some disdain for intentionally, or how is it happening that it's filtering down and, and polarizing the rest of us? Uh, a couple of things. There's a lot to... Uh, I know, I, mean, I know, I know. Uh, no, no, it's, it's all good, by the way. Um, uh, quick confession on my own end. Um, I prided myself, or um, I don't know if that's the correct word, but I, I, I put a lot of pride in the fact in grad school that I was an apolitical political scientist. In other words, cool. I, I, did, I, I didn't vote. I didn't, you know, I thought I was above that in large measure because I was interested in international relations. And really, for the most part, up until very, very recently, uh, there's been, you know, foreign policy doesn't change a whole lot from one regime to the next. But the problem is uh, politics, as you kind of find out soon enough, especially as I have recently, because I didn't vote in 2008, I didn't vote in 2012, I didn't vote in the midterm election. I thought, you know what, apolitical, political scientist, I'm just here to study. And then you know what I realized I was doing is all, all I'm doing by opting out of the political process is kind of signaling that I have a very high threshold for shitty policies. Mm-hmm. And, and then, by the way, and that's really kind of what the core of it is. Harold Laswell, very famous political scientist from way back in the Wayback Machine, uh, kind of came up with the best, useful, most useful description of politics when he says politics is who gets what, when, and how. And when you understand it that way, you'll understand that politics is inescapable. Everything's political. And when you're saying, or as I would say, and I'm not trying to pick on you, obviously – that, you know what, I, I don't want to get involved. Really what you're doing is you're signaling to politicians is you can give us as many public bads as you would like. I don't want to have to care. 
which means basically you're signaling to politicians when you opt out of the political process. I have a very high tolerance for shitty policies. Yeah, I, that's and, a great way to put it. And I do feel that yeah. way. <laughs> I just feel like I have a very high tolerance because, of course, their policies are shitty. Of course they yeah. are. I assume they are. And now I have to work on my own life to make it good. It's not their job to do that. Their job is no. to make my life worse is the way I look at it. So <laughs> No, but then what we end up doing is by opting out is we allow people who are more invested in having shitty policies to get their shitty mm -hmm. politicians into office to enact their shitty policies of choice. We all suffer for it. But the, so, but the yeah, other way to look at it is now I have to go play some game and pretend, and if I want to have more influence, then I might as well get more polarized and then start caring about stuff and grandstanding and all that nonsense. So I don't know well, any I mean, other way to play because it doesn't. It seems like a big waste of my time to slightly passively read some articles and do, like how much work am I going to put into something that doesn't seem like it's going to matter versus work I could put into bettering my own life. Well, yeah, but again, so much of what goes into bettering your own life, too, is the type of public policies your government provides for you to put you in a position to prosper, whether that's lowering or adjusting the tax rate, whether that's increasing social spending on education to provide for more accessible you know, opportunities for uh, at the you know, elementary, the secondary, and the collegiate level. It's, um, you know, it, politics is who gets what, when, and how, mm -hmm. and really inescapable. Everything is politics. And so, yeah, it's frustrating, especially because so much of what we see in the type of political system we have is a majoritarian first-past-the-post system whereby basically this is what we would call Duverger's law, that uh, we get this coalescing of competing interests into two blocks. And those two blocks don't necessarily make sense. You'll notice uh, – Democrats are not necessarily the liberal party per se. Democrats, we would classify them in a comparative perspective as basically another center-right party because Democrats aren't trying to nationalize everything. Democrats, for the most part, believe markets are good. They just want better regulation. Uh, same thing, too, with Republicans. You'll notice that flip-flop on trade. Republicans were the pro-business party, right? And now they want to cut off free trade. You know, free trade's a thing the libertarians should care a whole lot about. I certainly care a lot about it. Um but yeah, it's frustrating because the extent to which you want to get involved, say, if you're a concerned citizen who doesn't like the current government, and you might be more libertarian, which means that, you know what, I, I, I see what's happening with status policies that support or coddle industries, things like sugar, obviously, things like corn. Um, and you say, you know what, uh, I might identify as libertarian. Uh, I'm I'm going to go support the Libertarian Party. But the problem is libertarians are also kind of such a, a minority. Yeah, I don't uh, support them in yeah. a direct way or vote. That, I mean, yeah, I, so, you know, I don't vote either. Like, I haven't never been in a voting booth. But I suppose I could go in and just vote my gut on everything, I, perhaps. I mean, I, I'd be willing to maybe do that. But it seems yeah. super uninformed to even do <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's frustrating because you, in order to be better informed, you almost have to realize what who has the better chance of winning, and so, um, which means then you might find yourself invested in a Democrat that you don't otherwise particularly care for. You just know you prefer the Democrat to the Republican, and the Democrat has a better chance of beating the Republican than the Libertarian or the Reform Party guy or the Green Party person or whatever. Which means then, obviously, the more you play that, the more you feel invested in that. It becomes this ugly, uncomfortable bifurcation of us versus them. And for a political scientist right now, one of the things that concerns us the most, and I say this in full disclosure as a guy who spent a fair bit of time wandering around the former Yugoslavia, is we don't like the same things anymore. And increasingly kind of seeing how um, 
President Trump has flipped Republican positions on the NFL. That right, exactly. Like they're being Isn't told that- the thing they care about is football when you don't have to deal with politics. And now somebody's put some elite politicians on some side, whatever. Who cares who they are? I don't care if it's Trump or I don't care who it is. They're inserting themselves down to the level of shit we're supposed to all care about and like. And now there's people boycotting something they mm-hmm. like for some reason they don't even really understand. And that is that's horrible to me. Yeah. It's offensive. I mean, and, and but you know what? Um, uh, to kind of, and this will surplus, I think, back to the 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 issue where you you kind of notice that a lot of the polarization we see at the top level is bleeding down. Yes. And that's by the way how the model works. This is just how individuals you know, look at John Zeller's model, look at Rosenstone and Hansen's model. Generally, if you say you identify as a Democrat, you might identify as a Democrat because Democrats are the party for say LGBTQ issues, and mm-hmm. you myself identify as LGBTQ. And clearly, if that concerns you, if that's your big policy interest, you want those type of protections, it's fairly obvious Democrats are going to be the home for you relative to the Republicans. But when you're a Democrat for that reason, you don't know about free trade. You don't know about taxes. Single issue. Abortion, same way, whatever. Or if you just happen to be a gun collector, these are now single issues. So now your voice is invalidated on everything else because it's like, well, I'm locked into Democrats because I'm LGBTQ supporter. Okay. Yeah, but then you you look to those party elites to kind of tell you, okay, uh, what do I think about this issue? And then say uh, Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer tells you basically, well, actually, uh, you should support gun control because blank reasons. And that's generally, by the way, that's how the model works. Uh, Citizens, in fact, this almost works within a principal agent framework. We elect our partisans or we elect, I'm sorry, our politicians with the idea being that, again, we don't have time as ordinary citizens to figure all this stuff out. You do, right? You 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 run off and tell them basically, uh, but the then um, the issue there is the one of the implications of the principal agent framework is that those politicians know more about the issue than you do, and that they may want a certain thing from you, and they will bombard you with messages and cues until you adopt it. And that's and the gun control uh, thing. That's largely what we've seen. We first started to see that major split between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, 1994 and the Republican Revolution and the clear split we're starting to see even now is after 2008 for reasons that I think are fairly obvious to everyone involved. But, um, you know, the most anti-gun control president ever, Obama's going to take your guns away, you know. But um, but that's how that model works. And, um, you know, gener- generally... Um, have we done, uh, just outgrown it or something? Like, I mean, it doesn't sound even the way you're explaining it right. Still sounds like that's a sucky model. It doesn't sound like a good idea. It's a good empirical model. Yeah. I'm not saying it's necessarily a a healthy one, uh, but it's a. Uh, I mean, and healthy and normatively good is up for the the reader to decide. But yeah, no, that's just how it works. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, politicians know this is how it works. Um, and so the. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and if you want to work around that, a lot of it will mean you would have to invest time in figuring this stuff out for yourself and kind of re- resorting to literature, looking, reading things, and not just reading one thing, reading multiple things. So there's got to be a level of autodidacticism or auto, yeah, uh, to um, to kind of do this well. But that's also time on your end when you could be playing a guitar, and I wish I had more time to play a guitar myself. You could be watching more football and, you know, go Seahawks, right? But, um so um, yeah, it's 
but that's how it works. And we're, we are, we're almost delegating to our politicians to figure this stuff out for us. Well, if, you know, I understand, I'll put, I'll put it this way also. I'm not anti-America or even really anti-government in the broad sense. Like empirically, you're right. We got here. There's nothing better. I think America's the best country in the world. I love it. And I do think you should support your government. I'm, we're USA talking about smaller one. things there. Was that? Yeah. USA number one. Yeah, I, I think that. I mean, I just, you know, I understand that could be biased or whatever. I'm just saying mm-hmm. it's clear to me that the things I am quibbling about are still relatively smaller things in, in, the, in the global sense and the historical sense. Yes, we have a good system, It's you mm-hmm. know, but it feels to me like we've crossed some threshold of it's getting too big. Will this collapse under its own weight at some point? Does it, are, you know, are we going off the backside of what the most best system that's ever been designed was designed to do is what would be my worry. Well, um, my worry here is that, you know, democracy works the extent to which we want it to work. And that seems like it's kind of vague and an unhelpful way of saying it, but the truth is, and I think we've seen this uh, clear as day, is um, democracy works less on laws and more on elite shared norms, fundamental values about the way it's supposed to work. And things like presidential candidates are supposed to make transparent their tax returns, right? Presidents are supposed to not investigate their predecessors for crimes. They're not supposed to politicize regime changes like that. And so I, and that's one thing I worry as I've seen. In fact, I write a little bit about this on my blog that um, Republicans and Democrats, partisans, um, it's not clear they want democracy or it, I, okay, hold on. I worry we're entering a point where it's less clear where partisans want democracy and it's probably clear that dem- partisans want to win. And right. they want to beat the other side. Yes. That's not healthy. That's, I now, exactly that, agree with that. that whether that's a authoritarian system, whether that's a proportional representation system, whether you have a prime minister or a president, whatever it is, the institutions follow the norms. The norms precede the institutions that are born from it. If you don't share the same values, democracy is heading or careening down a very very bad path. Yes, and that kind of segues to the the other paper of yours I read about the confidence in the judicial system and terrorism mm -hmm. that undermines that even further, which seems like, almost feels like to me that since 9-11 happened, we're still, that carnage of that is still unfolding almost, like that destabilization or or has hyper, puts things into hyperdrive here um, Mm -hmm. politically, and where where it's almost like you're saying we're since that moment to now feels like we've accelerated this thing where it's like you maybe would trade freedom or democracy to just for your side to win. Like you'd take a more authoritarian thing that was in line with what you liked just Mm -hmm. because you want to win and your side that's polarized. And I think it's the difference, and I've said this before, in having opponents and enemies. These other people in our country are not our enemies. They're just people that think different. We're not enemies it drives me crazy we just kind of think different about policy maybe and none of us are that informed so mm-hmm. how is it that we'd be so willing to go all in on our side and trade things like our freedoms for our side gaining ground which just means ceding it to the government itself it's kind of concerning uh yeah a little bit <laughs> i would say so um yeah it's you know on the on the terrorism front uh, you know a lot of what interested me there was uh, watching, you know, you know how I returned back a conversation of what, what, how do we start our research? And really, it's just kind of something that that's puzzling. 
And for me, it was the fallout of the Charlie Hebdo attack, where, you know, we, one thing we know about France is France was the most consistently critical country in the world of how the U.S. applied the Patriot Act to its own citizens, not just spying abroad or whatever, but to own American citizens. France thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever. After Charlie Hebdo, like, now they want one of their own. They want their own Patriot Act, basically, to ideally prevent those terror attacks from happening. And so, yeah, the, I mean, as I, as I note there in that article, uh, generally the way it works is, you know, when terrorism happens and it happens in, or it happens in waves, you want to feel secure. You embolden the government to do that. Really, you're emboldening the executive or the head of state to do that. And you're looking for that executive to provide that public good of counterterrorism for you. And anything that is seen as an obstacle to that, whether that is an opposition in Congress, or, oh, sorry, an opposition in the legislature, or whether that's, um, you know, kind of an independent judicial system that can declare or can, can declare uh, executive policies as constitutional overreach. It's a judicial annulment, generally speaking. Um, that's a hindrance to security. And really, at the end of the day, Americans say, or citizens and democracies even, they want to be secure. That's like that base level Maslow's need, right? right? And that's, right. that's security. And that's core. Yeah, and that's and a feeling more than data because I can easily say, well, the data says, uh, "Honey, don't worry about terrorism. We got bigger problems to worry yes. about, like your motor vehicle. Don't worry about. Make sure the car yeah. seats end good. Don't worry about terrorists ever. Don't lose a wink of sleep about it." However, there's a fundamental mm -hmm. feeling of worry that we have that hits the, that way deeper side yeah. that makes us react differently as a whole society. Yeah, which and is the insidious the part about terrorism. It's like it works. Yeah. That, you know. And that's well, yeah, exactly. Uh, terrorism that works the extent to which citizens become scared. Right now, it doesn't exactly lead to the type of policy concessions that terror groups would like. But all the same, it uh, sometimes you know they're as much looking for policy concessions as they're just looking for a conflict. This is kind of why terrorists work on the same model as uh, civil war rebels that they're looking to provoke a conflict to kind of galvanize support among some type of target community. But actually, as I'm glad you mentioned it, even the motor vehicle things, I, and I, I had just shared this with my uh, introduction to international relations class, because we had a lecture on terrorism, obviously I have very, very strong hot takes on terrorism. The worst terror year on record in the United States was clearly 2001, in which case 3,115 people were killed or injured in a terror attack, and that's obviously most of that, 90, like 99% of that's 9-11. That same year, over 20,000 people were killed in drunk driving accidents, and 30,000 people, more than 30,000 people took their own lives. Mm -hmm. So in other words, all three of those things that I mentioned, terrorism, drunk driving, uh, suicides, those are all public bads. Uh, only one of those really drives the public's attention, and you kind of know which one that it is. So, the smallest yeah, one uh, numerically by a factor of, you know, of 10. Yeah, yeah. So, so, in fact, that connects everything we've been talking about is that people like to use the motor vehicle analogy with guns, for instance. Like, how you know, like, why don't we regulate that? And they like to think about <laughs> whether it's terrorism is, you know, statistically more significant. So it shows you that we don't care about that. I mean, our, the things that we care about and are driven by with stories and politicization and elites talking, dripping down to us are not necessarily things that impact us or matter the most, which is a concern to me. It's like it's not like the things that are the hottest debated things are the most important things. Right. It's not even they just don't even seem to be like even gun control. It, my zoomed out point of view is the policy this policy that, but of course we're still going to have the problem. It's not going to matter a ton what what legislation we pass really. Like I, to me, I think technological development 
in guns and weaponry will either make it irrelevant or solve it. One of the two, as we just, you know, it won't be that long before we have better weapons <laughs> that need to be controlled separately that won't, they'll be just as hard to control or anything. So the whole thing's quite confusing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, do What do you advocate for people to do, though, to be to, to resist? Like, what is it that you advocate that people learn or be aware of to not be manipulated by the top-down elite polarization is there a way forward here for us uh oh god it's it's there is but it's tough um and you'll notice um in fact i was reading there's an article forthcoming in political behavior where uh, god i forget um the ex- uh i forget the i forget the authors but it's forthcoming in a journal called political behavior where one of the things that they find is that partisans just screen out uh, ad. So if the idea is, you know, so much of what would make our situation better is if those who are diehard people who watch Fox News would like read the New York Times or watch CNN every now and then. But the problem is, and by the way, both sides, um, they screen that out. You have your Fox News bubble, you have your MSNBC bubble, you don't leave that. And when something comes your way, say, you're watching a college football game, and let's fast. Let's rewind back a year. You're watching a college football game, and during the commercial break, a an ad for Hillary Clinton comes on. Especially if you live where I live, and that's proximate to North Carolina, so we were getting a fair bit of those. If I'm a Republican, I change the channel. So how, <laughs> you know how? But that there's a problem there. How do you address your misconceptions when you're so in the weeds with them? That you will immediately bounce back anything that looks remotely discordant with what you believe to be true. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, we're in a very. This is where I think we had this conversation earlier, where we're in a very s- difficult spot, where we don't share this. Where we're, it's becoming clearer that we may not be sharing the same values. We may not have the same views towards the world. We may not believe in the same things. We're unwilling to talk to each other. We're unwilling to date each other. All those things leads to these two separate Americas, one red and one blue. And yeah, that clusters regionally, but still, you know, it's, it's, it's partisanship all the way down. Now, how do we get around that? And this is where I would encourage someone like you, someone who might be listening to this, just to kind of be mindful of what's really important to you. And so let's say you're a Democrat and you really want Democrats to win or you're a Republican. You really want Republicans to win. But what's really important to you? What's really important to you, I would think, would be some type of adequate provision of public goods that provides for your material well-being and gives you the opportunity and the liberties to say and do as you see fit within reason. Right. Mm -hmm. So. If that's what you really want, then resist urges to swallow without chewing the messages that you get from your partisan elites. And this is where I would encourage you. So much of the problem isn't that people read. It's that they don't read enough. So please understand the fact that if you are embroiled knee-deep within partisan dispositions, that the New York Times is going to say something about Donald Trump that is true. And it's not going to be flattering for him, and you should accept that. Likewise, if you're a strong Democrat, someone's going to say something about, say, what the type of possible negative externalities that follow just a severe tax hike on the rich. That's inconsistent with what a lot of Democrats signal about taxation, but all the same, there's something there. 
understand it, embrace it, and whether or not you feel the need to balance it out or qualify it or look for scope conditions under which that statement is true, do so. But the problem isn't that people aren't reading. It's just that they're not reading enough, and they're superficially skimming for things that already conform to their worldview. And where true knowledge is gained is from people reading not just text, not just thesis, but antithesis and looking for synthesis. Yes. That's and there's no you know but you know what that entails though, it entails you having to work, it entails you having to read that stuff, and it entails you having to say well okay, I think people should have guns, or I, I agree that you know it's perfectly fine to have a, a weapon for self defense, but I'm wondering why on earth do you have an AR-15? Mm-hmm. So what is the origin of the AR-15? And by the way, that's the Vietnam War. So I mean, read. <laughs> Reread, look, I mean, search out difference. Yeah. You'll be surprised by what difference does for you. I'm afraid and it takes more than just the work and the willingness to do it. It also requires that you are not operating out of like a, uh, you know, fear. Like you have to drop the absolute terror, being afraid of another side, another morality, another point of view. Uh, uh, you know, maybe you had to drop your safety concerns a second to think about something like that. So that's the real barrier is people not even being willing to take their emotional, intuitional level down enough to even begin mm-hmm. to consider is, is a, a problem. And that, that's what the political ads and all this stuff, it just tries to ramp up our fear because it's the easiest way to control people. It's kind of... It's, it's, you know, what's very difficult trying to get somebody to understand, Hey, listen, terrorism is something that we would like to address. We think we have some meaningful policies to kind of drive down the probability of a very rare event from happening with, with that could have huge collateral damage. Mm-hmm. I don't have the patience to hear that. If I'm your typical citizen, what I do have the patience to hear is terrorists are going to kill us. Vote for me. Right. Uh, I mean, do you see the problem? Right. Well, how so, can you campaign yeah. on, we should be less scared of terrorists. Like there's not, you can't, that doesn't work. Uh, And in fact, most Americans, I I think the modal category of the most important issue in the presidential election, as Americans thought it was, was some combination of terrorism slash immigration. And clearly the implication being that immigrants would be terrorists. But I know it's nonsense. But all the same, Americans think. And by the way, if you're somebody like Hillary Clinton, who wasn't necessarily a saint on this issue of mollifying or qualifying fears about terrorism, you could challenge your uh, would-be voters and encourage them to think and basically say, I think you're wrong, or you could humor them and say, you're right, and I'm going to fix this for you. Yeah, well, I'm hoping we're in a temporary blip of polarization, but and a lot of people like to blame Donald Trump for it, and I think that's kind of scapegoating in a way. Of course, he has caused many problems, no doubt, with his words, but his tweets, everything, but I feel like maybe, I don't I feel like the genie's out of the bottle on that. Like, he just is an archetype, and it's somebody who maybe has figured out some of this, even accidentally so. Uh, it seems like you'll just get more of the same, even if it's not him, specifically. Yeah, the only, the only thing that is unique about Donald Trump is that his total lack of regard for subtext, it's all text. It's crazy, and basically, yeah. And by the way, and here's where I'm going to get in a lot of trouble, I'm sure, from some of your listeners, but um, everything Donald Trump has said has been basically the same theme of Nixon's law and order, of Ronald Reagan's welfare queen, of George H.W. Bush's Horton ad. It's the only thing, and the only thing there is there's no subtext, there's no whistle, there's no dog whistle, there's just... The foghorn mounted on a tugboat. Mm-hmm. And, but it's um, working, so that's exposed that for other people to follow is the concern. Yep. Impeach him all you want. doesn't matter. Somebody, I mean, I don't know exactly. It might be a particularly uh, uh, treacherous <laughs> thing, but I feel like mm-hmm. it, his techniques have already been co- – I mean, it's the thing where you say – 
don't stoop down to somebody else's level. He's on a low level, and guess what? We have already all stooped to his level. That's just the game everybody's playing, so I don't know if it's going to go back the other way. Yeah, he he was, was, if anything, rewarded for race subtext to text. So, you know, what's the disincentive for a future politician to not do that? In fact, you're even seeing that now with somebody like Roy Moore in Alabama, and God knows I know a lot about him, because I used to live in Alabama for six years, of... um, Ed Gillespie or whatever his name is in Virginia, running for governor, kind of just outright whistling about Confederate monuments and, and so on. That's if, if anything that works, and that's you, you respond to what works, and it worked for Trump. And now, granted, you could say it worked for Trump that he won the presidency with what forty-four percent of the vote, largely based on the distribution of white voters. Mm-hmm. It worked. So right. well, that's what, by his line, uh, that, that was the game he was playing. What, what other game? Yeah. He would have played a different game if it would have been another strategy to win. But that yeah. was it, and he did it. So it doesn't make you president of Seattle. Right. It just makes you president of the United States. <laughs> so um, you know, I mean, sure as heck is not going to win California, but. He wasn't going to win in California anyway, so what's his incentive? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Steve, I appreciate your time today. I'm sure you got a lot of other stuff to do, classes, lectures, research, all that stuff. But what what, what do you have to do the rest of the day? What kind of stuff do you, uh, does an academic uh, do? Right. That's a, uh, that's a lot of what we do. It's just writing. So in essence, uh, and this is where I think it's um, kind of easy to, to lampoon us that we – from the outside perspective, we almost look like we're the same person who has who's writing this really cool book in Starbucks. But you just have to believe them; the book will be done soon, right? Mm-hmm. No, but they look like they're writing, and you know. But it's, um, yeah, it's uh, you know, writing manuscripts. I just submitted one for review. Um, I finished uh, two lectures for tomorrow, and then the rest of it will be uh, just working on more research. It never ends, but I like it. <laughs> well, we're glad we have people in there trying to do the, that hard work. And I, I do think of it the way you're saying it's a public good, and I wish more people would pay more attention yeah. to the academic stuff. It is a little thicker. It is a little harder. But you can kind of – I mean, you kind of can get above the noise level of just the real pop journalism that way, at least, yeah. if you're an interested person in, in stuff. But thank you for your time and, and talking me through some of this stuff today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I hope you found it informative, and I apologize to you and your listeners if you did not. <laughs> no, they'd turn it off if they don't like it after five minutes. No problem. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. 
Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.